This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. For almost 75 years, this great alliance has shielded our nations, and it continues to do so today. But war has returned to Europe. NATO is being tested. All democracies are being tested. I'm Arthur Snell. Welcome to Doomsday Watch. There is a full-fledged war going on in Europe. Have the Allies done enough? I truly understand that this is a technical signal. We agree on the language proposed. Here at Bucharest, we must make clear that NATO welcomes the aspirations of Ukraine for their membership in NATO. There is no risk-free option. A no risk free option for NATO allies either. When President Putin invaded Ukraine last year, he underestimated the bravery of the Ukrainian people. But he also underestimated the unity and strength of the NATO alliance. Ukraine is now closer to NATO than ever before. Today, we meet as equals. I look forward to the day we meet as allies. That was NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, and we're recording this episode just as the NATO summit is wrapping up in Vilnius. For months, there has been wrangling in alliance capitals about what to do with Ukraine at the summit. Would this be the occasion to announce Ukraine's membership of NATO? or at least a formal invitation to join? Well, as listeners have no doubt now heard, it didn't work out that way. At the summit, the following communique was released regarding Ukraine's membership. It says, Ukraine's future is in NATO. We reaffirm the commitment we made at the 2008 summit in Bucharest that Ukraine will become a member of NATO. We will be in a position to extend an invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met. So, Ukraine, 15 years after being told it will become a member, and nearly 10 years after being invaded by Russia, is still being fobbed off with indeterminate promises for the future and expected to meet conditions that are unclear and ill-defined. It's perhaps not surprising that Ukrainian President Zelensky responded, and using his words, it's unprecedented and absurd when the time frame is not set, neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership. So as we'll be hearing, there was a lot of tension around these issues at the summit. And should we call then this summit a mess, a bust-up that leaves NATO looking weak, divided, unsure whether it wants to support Ukraine at all? To discuss these issues, I spoke to NATO and Russia expert John Luff and also the former US ambassador to Ukraine, Stephen Pfeiffer. But first, to tell us exactly how things worked out at the summit, I'm delighted to be joined by Ulrika Franke, 
a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, who spoke to us just hours after she had touched down from her flight back from Vilnius. Ulrika, thanks for joining us. And, and you've just returned from Vilnius. So let's start there. What, what was it like being there? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I was there for two days. I mean, not at the NATO summit. So the way it works is that there is the actual NATO summit with the heads of state and government that come that are coming together. Um, and then basically right next to it, um, they pitched a tent <laughs> for people like myself where they do the NATO public forum um, yeah. and where you have, yeah, um, actually this time relatively small number of experts and think tankers that come together and um, meet the people from the summit. So you basically have like a rotating cast from the, the summit itself that comes by. So the UK defense minister, Ben Wallace, was there, the German defense minister, lots of foreign ministers, um, Jake Sullivan, the US uh, national security advisor, all of, all of them came to came to talk to us. I want to get into the, the sort of the meat of the summit. But one of the things I thought was interesting, and I think you tweeted about it slightly, is the way that NATO, as a result of really the, the Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, NATO has become almost like a sort of popular culture meme. Um, whereas, you know, for, for decades, it was a very important but rather technocratic professional alliance of, of, of military and defence professionals. So could you say a bit about that sort of atmosphere of, of people who, who, in their support for Ukraine, have become sort of passionate about NATO itself? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting development. So first of all, I think you're right that just overall the interest in um, the support for NATO has increased quite a lot. Um, I mean, there are countries where that was more or less always the case in kind of the Eastern, Eastern Europeans, especially the Baltic countries. But even, you know, throughout Europe, and NATO is not just better known, but also better liked, if you like. Um, yeah. But um, you are referring to, it's not quite an organization, but a number of people that are calling themselves NAFO or NAFO, so yes. obviously, you know, inspired by NATO. Um, and it's the North Atlantic FELAS organization. And the FELAS are the, the kind of members, um, self-appointed members of this, this organization. And it's basically, so what we've been seeing in this war, which I thought or I think is, is really interesting, is that you have a lot of people all around the world, primarily in the Western world, um, that are involved in its memes its shit posting but i you know this this we shouldn't look kind of look at this and say like oh whatever like they they're turning this into a joke absolutely not i mean yes they they joke a lot but um so these are people that are collecting a lot of money for um ukrainian war efforts and are yeah. buying you know thousands of drones with this money and i mean the ukrainian government is actually in encouraging this it's it's a very interesting development in my view um that goes that that brings this war kind of beyond the ukrainian borders but i suppose what what's interesting is that i don't think any country would be member of nato before has ever had this sort of level of 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 public engagement and of course that takes us then over to the big question of how ukraine would sort of integrate with the alliance and obviously there were there were some moments of tension there was there were clearly there was clear frustration on the Ukrainian side, but also some frustration voiced on existing ally um, members of the alliance. What, what are your reflections on, on that particular episode? Mm. Some of this frustration stems a little bit from expectations that were too high. I mean, yeah. no one 
should have expected and could have expected Ukraine to actually be offered membership while this war was still ongoing. And I mean, Zelensky actually said that much uh, in, in the past. So, I mean, they yeah. kind of the government knows this. Um, this. It's just not possible to take on a country that is in an active war with with Russia. Um, so so that was never an option. So the compromise that was reached in the in the communique um, I think they could have gone a little bit further. Um, and I was especially thinking that, you know, if I had written this communique, I would have been more positive regarding the efforts that Ukraine has already made. I mean, both when it comes to, to democratization and anti-corruption um, fight and all of that, um, but also just the kind of, you know, what the, the current efforts that are that they're making in terms of defense and security and all of this. It just shows that, yeah, the, the alliance, the members aren't quite ready yet. I mean, obviously not immediately, but but there are still some concerns. Nevertheless, so the thing, the thing I think it is really important to note is that, yes, these communiques matter and they do send signals on all of this. But if the members were to decide tomorrow that they actually wanted to take in Ukraine, and if, you know, imagine that the war ends tomorrow, um, the, the, the alliance could take in Ukraine basically immediately. This whole thing about requirements, because they're not very spelled out or not spelled out at all, they can easily also be fulfilled. But unfortunately, the flip side of that is that they can also be used, these requirements can also be used to to keep Ukraine out of the alliance for a very, very long time, because there can always be someone sa saying this requirement hasn't been met yet. Yeah. And, and on that point about requirements, it, it I think it, it looks a little bit sort of unfair to Ukraine in the simple sense that, as, as you will know better than I do, countries have been admitted maybe fairly small countries, but nonetheless, as members of the alliance, countries like Montenegro, countries like Bulgaria, who at the point of entry, it would be perfectly possible to question uh, their their adherence to certain standards. Yeah. And of course, the countries who've been long members, uh, you know, Turkey and Hungary, notably, certainly aren't democracies. Um, and and therefore, you know, it, it seems that the, the standard being applied to Ukraine might not be the standard being applied to other countries. Yeah. Um, so NATO is different in this regard, for example, from the European Union, right? The European Union has this like huge um, accession process with um, dozens of chapters that need yeah. to be kind of worked through and has, has have very specific requirements and you need to change your law and sometimes even your constitution all of this is very much set out and so um, there everyone kind of fulfills the same requirements NATO doesn't have that so these requirements yes are more they are more subjective and indeed they they can kind of it can be changed depending on the country, um, but this is this is this is what I what I meant by you know this could change tomorrow because we've seen with Finland and Sweden how quickly countries can join NATO if the allies agree. You know, despite all the time that, that we're spending, kind of reading this communique and despite all the discussions we're having about this, I I kind of think that maybe we should be cautious to not overly interpret um, this language simply because. Once circumstances changes, um, things can also change rather quickly. And by the way, the German defense minister said as much in an interview um, last night or the night before, where he basically said, "Yeah, I mean, once this this war is over, this can also go really quick." I, I don't I don't think that Ukraine should be overly disappointed, but it is true that I think NATO could have could have done a bit more without you know becoming completely reckless. And so I suppose in trying to understand that. There were, there were one or two briefings that, that came out of the summit. And of course, you don't want to attach too much to what could be a throwaway remark. But we saw Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, who, you know, 
Britain, as it goes without saying, has been forward-leaning in its support to Ukraine. However, he seemed to be expressing frustration. Uh, there was this question of whether Ukrainians had sort of been sufficiently grateful. Mm. And there was this, this, this line, we're not Amazon, as in we're not a sort of you know, delivery, delivery company yeah. with, a, with you, you have a wish list and we, we show up. Is this just stress at the summit or is there something a bit, there's something under there, which is that uh, perhaps alliance members, uh, major Western military players are starting to feel a bit of impatience with Ukraine? All of these countries and all of these people, these individual people are under a lot of pressure, right? I mean, every politician needs to balance a lot of different pressures in this in this situation. Um, they have the international situation where you have, you know, Ukraine telling them, we need more, we need more, you need to help us, very understandably, um, and, and where you have um, other countries that say, well, don't escalate or, or don't do too much. You have allies that have expectations and ask you, to kind of help them, help the Ukrainians. Um, then you have the whole domestic front where you also need to explain to people why you're you're doing as much or also as little, depending on the country. Um, and that in a time where, you know, inflation is a big topic and, and uh, th there are lots of other crises. And so I think it's just that this war has been going on for, for a while now. Um, it is a very difficult situation at a time where there are lots of other crises. Um, I, have, I have to say, I feel that, The West, the alliance or NATO alliance, the EU, um, the Western politicians, Ukraine have handled that all of that remarkably well over the last 16 months. Um, they have shown unity. They have, you know, supported Ukraine, all of this. Uh, so, so I feel that overall this is going well, but there will always be these moments where, yeah, there is there some frustration comes to the surface. Yeah. To think more in, in sort of policy terms rather than, than you know, what, what, as you rightly say, are, are people doing very difficult jobs. Um, one of the interesting things is actually the sort of shifting nature of internal dynamics within NATO. So what I'm talking about here is, is the extent to which at this summit, it's arguable that, that Germany and the United States were more closely aligned on the kind of cautious approach mm. Now, Germany's, and, and you know, I defer to you on this, obviously, but you know, Germany's uh, long history of sort of coming to terms with its its status as as a major European military power in the 21st century. It, it's we all know that context, uh, but with the US, it feels it feels rather different and more surprising, given that the US has been the most forward leaning. Uh, in terms of supporting Ukraine militarily, so what what was your understanding of of that? Both that sort of that ad hoc alliance, but also the reasons that drove it. So the alliance between Washington and Berlin doesn't surprise me at all because Berlin tends to take its cue from Washington, broadly speaking. I mean, not always, but most of the time. Um, what surprised me more in a way was was France and Macron being so much more outspoken on a, a fast uh, accession of Ukraine to, to NATO yeah. because he has been more critical of, of this in the past. Um, but I think there has been a change there. Um, with regard to kind of... Washington and, and, and Berlin's position, I think the big fear, especially in D.C., is they really want to avoid a situation where NATO and thus the EU, uh, U.S. could find itself in some kind of military confrontation with Russia. I think this, this still is very much the guiding principle. The U.S. has been by far the most important supporter of Ukraine throughout this war, and not just, you know, in sheer numbers. They're also the most important supporter in sheer numbers. 
maybe almost more importantly in bringing the alliance together, the kind of alliance that supports Ukraine and, and really imposing unity on on the Western world. And honestly, if someone else would have been president and if the U.S. wouldn't have been so so clear in that, I don't know where the West would have been with regard to this war for Ukraine. I mean, some countries certainly would have supported Ukraine either way, but I think the U.S. really has played an enormously important role. I wanted to, to talk then a bit more about the future. Um, so what's your sense, not necessarily within NATO, but of the kind of NATO members, of, of where that engagement with, with Ukraine's military is going? So I think the level of support is still very high. And we've got these promises from France. We've got promises to train Ukrainian soldiers in F-16s and others. Quite honestly, I think the biggest problem now isn't so much willingness, but ability and just stocks. Arsenals are have emptied. Um, Military industrial production has not ramped up sufficiently. Um, that's one of the reasons why why the U.S. is now delivering cluster munitions to to Ukraine. It has to do with the fact that well, other ammunition is very difficult to come by. So, so I think we're really we've we've hit a situation where this is this is a military industrial um, uh, challenge at this point, and um, we haven't really solved that problem yet. You know, an element of that was uh, the European Union's uh, commitment to manufacture and provide fairly significant um, quantities of ammunition. And that doesn't seem to be going to plan. Yeah, I, I think it most most of these efforts have basically been uh, been delayed. And we are really realizing in Europe, but also actually in the US, that our military industrial complexes, our military industrial bases, they, they aren't as strong as, well, they would need to be in a, in a war of this this size and, and this time. And there, so production is being ramped up and, and all of yeah. this, but it's taking too long. And um, it has also taken too long to realize this. So um, the Ukrainian counteroffensive was delayed, among other reasons, because they didn't have enough equipment and material together yet. As we've sort of identified, the Ukrainians have this challenge with kind of lack of weaponry, mm. is there a risk that this ends up sort of freezing the conflict? I think there's definitely a risk. I think the allies have managed so far to keep this risk at a low level. Um, but quite honestly, this has always been the the speculation of Vladimir Putin. I mean, he's definitely waiting for and hoping for the, the election in the US to turn in a way that's, that's detrimental to Ukraine. And he is thinking that he can just wait out the the western supporters yeah so i think it's it's something that we need to keep in mind but um it's it's not an immediate uh, risk because for now i think support is is holding up so uh finally you said earlier obviously if um ukraine were a member of nato immediately then you know arguably we would be in a war with russia but you could argue we are participants in this war you know we we supply ukraine with most of the weapons it needs we we train its soldiers as other sort of logistic and intelligence support um and and as you all know very well the article 5 does not say that that the the armed forces must commit to be in the field of battle it it's you know it's it's a much broader point about about mutual defense so in a way i are we slightly sort of dancing around definitions where where in practice the reality is we are participants in this war um on on that no i think on that i would disagree with you i think there really is a substantial and really important difference between actually fighting in a war and and yeah being involved in a war and and supporting those that are fighting without any question the western world is supporting ukraine 
in an extremely important manner and Ukraine wouldn't be able to defend itself to the extent that it is now without that support. So weapons deliveries are extremely important. Intelligence sharing, no question about that. Um, training, financial support, um, all of that. But nevertheless, uh, there is a difference between this and having actual you know, soldiers from NATO countries uh, fighting Russia. So just because Ukrainians are riding in, in German tanks, that's not the same as, you know, the Bundeswehr um, riding German tanks and attacking them. And so I, and I think, so, so I think this distinction is very important um, point. And I think especially the, the general public is now learning about Article 5 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and about, in a way, the ambiguity around Article 5 that is important but shouldn't go too far. So basically the way it works is that Article 5 says uh, an attack against one member is attack against all. And then, you know, all member states are supposed to help um, whoever is getting attacked. But it isn't specified as to how this help would look like. And there is the saying that it can go from a kind of telegram saying, oh, I'm really sorry you're getting attacked, yeah. to an armed brigade. This is also important because it um, allows for de-escalation. So there is no automaticity in the sense that one gets attacked and all of a sudden NATO is at war. Um, you don't want that yeah. because that would be stupid, because there may be situations where you're like, you know, that's not a good idea. However, you also don't want to go too far down the route of saying, Oh, well, Article 5 is whatever the members, member states make of it, because if you were to take in Ukraine today, um, you could, of course, basically take out this this war and say, well, Article 5 doesn't apply here or something like that. Um, no one is keeping you from doing that. But this is very difficult, and I think this would undermine the, the trust in Article 5. And if you undermine the trust in Article 5, Article 5 falls. Like, the whole point is that people believe that, yes, the others are going to come to our help when we're being attacked. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This week, our alliance must also decide how to respond to the request by Georgia and Ukraine to participate in NATO's membership action plan. These two nations inspired the world with their rose and orange revolutions. And now they're working to consolidate their democratic gains and cement their independence. Here in Bucharest, we must make clear that NATO welcomes the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine for their membership in NATO and offers them a clear path forward to meet that goal. Welcome back to our special NATO episode of Doomsday Watch. I wanted to get into the history of Ukraine's relations with the alliance. You just heard that clip of former US President George W. Bush talking about Ukraine and Georgia's membership aspirations as long ago as 2008. So how has Ukraine been stuck as a potential member for so long? To get into these historical questions, I spoke to John Luff, Russia expert, associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House, and in the late 1990s, 
the first NATO representative to be based in Moscow. John knows intimately the details of what happened at Bucharest. Well, let's go back to, indeed, uh, 2008 and interrogate that commitment that was made by NATO member states when they said that Georgia and Ukraine, and I quote, will become members of the alliance. Yeah. And I've spoken to people who were in the room when this language was worked out. With these communiques, the, the sort of difficult sections are put in what's called square brackets, and they then move up the chain. So the foreign ministers will probably have a go at them, and uh, you know if they're not successful, they go up to then the the, head, the heads of state and government. And in this case, it went right to the top. And one of the concerns was that in the original uh, proposal that they were almost agreed on, they wanted to say that that Georgia and Ukraine will one day become members of NATO. So really put it out into the long grass. And it was somebody from, I believe, from Central Europe who interjected and said, if we say that, it'll be a signal to the Georgians, Ukrainians, and above all to the Russians, that NATO enlargement to these countries is never going to happen. So they then you know, stepped back and it, it became this formulation that they will become members of the alliance. Um, but if you kind of decode the NATO position here, there was no reference uh, to any sort of time frame for a so-called membership action plan, which uh, traditionally has got you into the sort of anti-room uh, yep. of NATO. The issue was really kicked into the long grass and largely forgotten about. But over the last uh, 500 days, and let's remember we've been in this war for just over 500 days, the issue has started to arise very seriously of how Ukraine can be made secure when this terrible war comes to an end. There's a great deal of talk about the reconstruction of the country, its recovery. I mean, I think a lot of very inspirational things uh, are on the table there around how Ukraine can capitalize on its uh, many strengths, including the just the vitality of its civil society but the kind of elephant in the room is this question of security guarantees yeah there is absolutely no way you can rebuild ukraine without establishing a secure and sustainable peace because investors are not going to come yeah unless they see that and the bulk of the investment to rebuild ukraine will in fact come from the private sector from both ukrainian sources and and of course international sources yeah so that, that's the problem we haven't quite got to yet. And the Ukrainians, of course, had very high expectations. They mounted a formidable lobbying effort to get many of the European member states behind them. I think they were very successful in doing this, by the way. And it wasn't just the Bolts and the Poles. Um, there were many others. The, even, even the French and the Turks um, yeah. started to give ground on this issue. And it really does seem as though the Americans, backed by the Germans, were much more cautious. But the, you know, the language has removed the need for a membership action plan, but it still states that Ukraine will join when the member states agree it can and when certain conditions are met. So the Ukrainians were, I think, understandably frustrated by that language. But I note, note that during the summit, President Zelensky's rhetoric changed. And I think after the G7, announced its determination to provide Ukraine with some form of security guarantee uh, to prevent Russian aggression happening again, he seems to have softened. And he said that the the results of the the NATO uh, communique were not ideal, as he put it, but they were still good. 
Yeah. So he has kind of moved a little bit. And the other thing also we have to remember is that many of the member states have renewed their pledges of defense support to Ukraine. So one, one certainly can't say that they've come away from this summit empty-handed. And yeah. it's going to come back again because we have the, the Washington summit next year, which will be the 75th anniversary of NATO. And I, I suspect this issue is going to be out there again. And we may have invent, you know, in, entered a very different phase of the war. I'm, I'm personally skeptical that the war will be over by then. But you know, at the moment, the war is still very finely balanced. So let's explore some of these issues. I mean, the language of 2008, in a way, hasn't moved very much. And, but as you say, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, the, the military assistance that Ukraine is receiving from across the board, from the US, from France, from Germany, from the UK, and so on, is actually being done on a bilateral basis. So that doesn't, that doesn't depend on NATO, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But I think the discussions within NATO of the outlook for Ukraine in this war are extremely important in terms of informing the NATO allies of others' positions. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that NATO is not providing this um, military equipment because it doesn't have the equipment to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, the the equipment is always in the hands of, and the forces are in the hands of the member states. That so they simply, in the case of the activation of Article Five, then they put their forces under NATO command, and that's yeah. always the way um, that the system has worked. But for now, my view is that they are still capable of winning this war if we give them the tools we need, and if our Western leaders at the same time just abandon their fear of a Ukrainian victory. We still seem to be in this space where we're worried about Putin escalating, whatever that means. Um, The implication is that he would use a nuclear weapon. I mean, he doesn't really look like a man who wants to commit suicide, given how far he sits away from his officials at a table. Um, He seems to value his own survival also, I personally very much doubt that he could launch a nuclear weapon very yeah. easily um, because it has passed through a chain of command. The Russian general staff knows it would face catastrophic consequences. We, we would NATO countries would use conventional weapons to yeah. inflict, uh, I think, unimaginable damage on the, the Russian war machine. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the other old chestnut that goes back to the 1990s again is that we'll have instability in Russia. We'll have a risk of the Russian Federation breaking up. And, you know, we, we just don't want that. Mm. Well, let me put it this way. When Putin leaves office, office and biology tells us that, you know, that probably is going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years, yeah. we are going to face many of those problems. Yeah. And we, we can't control that at all. So I think we've got to get used to the fact that a Ukrainian victory in the long term would, first of all, restore the greater part of Ukrainians, uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity. It would allow us to build this kind of ring of steel. And the other factor is that we will see how defeat energizes the Russian system to seek alternative solutions. This idea that they must always build security by depriving their neighbors of security is something that they've conducted over centuries. But it's it may you know we've seen it most I suppose most visibly in the nineteenth century if we think think back uh, you know, to the sort of great power politics that Russia played that is something that belongs to the past and yeah. the Russians need to get their minds around this because they cannot afford to be um, in my estimation in this degree of confrontation with the West at the same time as China is bearing down on them. Yeah, 
you made a very eloquent and I think um, completely valid point that Putin is not suicidal. There, there are loads of reasons to believe that Putin is not about to launch a tactical nuclear weapon. It's, it's still less a you know a full scale sort of nuclear war. And of course, um, we can see the pattern of Putin's behaviour, which is that he does escalatory threats, but actually, when people stand up, up to him, he normally backs down. So, all that being the case, makes one wonder: Well, why can't Ukraine join NATO? Because uh, as you will know better than most, Article 5 is not an automatic lock on a war. It seems to me that there there could have been a perfectly valid case for Ukraine to have joined now, today. I think if you look at it that way, then yes. But the member states think about this mutual defence guarantee a little differently. In other words, if a member state is under attack, then they are obliged to come together to decide effectively how they're going to address that issue. But we all know the effectiveness of the NATO mechanism is that Article 5 is seen as evidence that it's um, all for one and and one for all. So you've got to turn up and be ready to fight. And NATO, uh, the leaders of NATO countries have so far not prepared their publics for this possibility. If you look at the official discourse in Germany, for example, uh, Chancellor Scholz all the time is saying that we cannot be a party to this war. Now, given the level of weaponry that we are providing, and the Germans included, we are most definitely a party to this war. And we are not being completely honest with ourselves here. And of course, with that is the intriguing nature of alliance politics at the moment. And, And what I'm talking about here is the fact that, yes, of course, Germany, very cautious, very nervous about Ukraine uh, joining NATO in in any short order. But America, you know, the the, the main block to to Ukraine's NATO membership has been the United States of America, which at the same time, of course, has led the alliance in its provision of weaponry to Ukraine. Add to that the fact that perhaps Ukraine's biggest uh, need at the moment is is air power. and, And they're trying to complete a, a major counteroffensive in modern warfare effectively without air power, which is almost unprecedented. It may not be possible. And the Americans have been extremely reluctant on the F-16s as well. So what's going on here? Because it's certainly not the case that America isn't helping Ukraine. They absolutely are. But there seems to be some quite severe limits on what they're willing to do. Yeah, there are. And what we don't know exactly is where those limits lie. Yeah. And the, you know, the US mantra is that, you know, we will continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. And nobody knows what it actually means here. <laughs> um, if we parse the, the words of Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, there's this notion that you know, Ukraine's got to be put into the most advantageous position at the negotiating table. And the assumption here is, even the British Prime Minister repeats this mantra that, in my view, has very li- limited foundation to it, is that all wars end at the negotiating table. Well, they don't. You can't say that the World War II ended at the negotiating table. Yes, the, you know, the Germans had to sign this unconditional surrender in Europe, hmm. um, but that's because they had a military defeat inflicted on them. Yeah. And that can, can say, equally happen in the case of the Russian army. 
parts of the Russian army are fighting quite effectively in Ukraine, but there are other parts that are not, not at all. Yeah. And we, we see many reports of uh, desertions, poor morale. It's clear that Ukrainians still have a huge advantage in terms of their motivation to fight. The country is still, the, all the opinion polls show the population at large is still firmly behind um, you know, a commitment to achieving victory and remains remarkably optimistic about the possibilities for doing so. Yeah. I continue to take the view that the Ukrainians' morale will in fact prove to be the decisive factor. Yeah. The question is, will the Russian front hold up? Yeah. If there's another in a Prigozhin-like incident, then it might not. Yeah. And many Russian analysts have the view that this has only just started the maybe the sort of the, the earthquake within you know the, the Russian system of power is going to have certain aftershocks um, and there may be another you know major earthquake. You you have held a very unique job which may never exist again, which was to be a NATO representative in Russia. Um, which, which you know, it feels almost quaint, the idea that such a thing might occur. And that was, of course, in the late 90s, in a brief sort of window of comparative opportunity between the West and Russia. And I just wonder if you reflect back on that period, was there a, a sort of sliding door moment, a branching future in which Russia realised that NATO, whilst maybe established as a as a defensive alliance against Russia did not need to be any threat to Russia and and Russia could have chosen a different path or or was that was that never really a very likely outcome it was an unlikely outcome however if we hadn't had the the Kosovo intervention in 1999 that really accelerated this alienation um, between Russia and the west then we might have had a bit more time to build some of those personal and professional links that are just part of the defence community. This is what NATO was trying to do. It was trying to expand this culture of cooperation to include the Russians. And we had a Russian brigade integrated into the peacekeeping operation in Bosnia-Herzegovina. It was under Russian command, but it was, it was integrated into a NATO military operation. And we, you know, we had a Russian staff deployed to NATO's military headquarters in the south of Belgium, and it worked extremely well. Those Russian officers who came to, to, to Belgium were part of that um, operation. They understood that NATO was something different from what they'd been led to believe. Yeah. And strikingly, when those people went back to Moscow, their careers ended. They had probably been seen to collaborate with the potential enemy, is what I would be my reading of it. There were a lot of people sitting on the fence and who didn't really trust the West and trust their own ability to look respectable in front of the West at a time when the country was known and actually going through very, very difficult times. And it was just very easy to get back into you know, what I describe as a sort of Russian muscle memory yeah. that you know, we've, we've just got to be in this confrontational posture. Because that's the only way we can survive. Yeah. And you know, we will continue to define our security in such a way, security interests in such a way, that you know, we have to defend our country beyond its borders. And you know, to hell with the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, the Balts and others. If that tramples on their security interests, that's just tough luck. You know, they're living next door to a great power. Some of that thinking was most definitely around in the 1990s, even in the more liberal circles. 
Um, I, I regret that we didn't um, engage with it more forcefully because Russia doesn't have to defend itself that way. And that's a big lesson that Germany learned at the end of World War II. And one has to hope at some point the Russians will review the mistakes they've made and learn the lesson. Whether they really want to learn the lesson is, um, is another matter. And for the Germans, it was much easier. They were occupied. They learned democracy um, with uh, the French, the British, um, the Americans you know, bearing down on them. But the results were spectacular. that, uh, that uh, we proposed, that you proposed, uh, relative to the future of uh, Ukraine being able to join NATO. We're looking for a continued United NATO. The American president heard me say many times, I still think that, uh, that President Putin thinks the way he succeeds is to break NATO. I'm not going to do that, especially with you as leader. So thank you for the willing to do that. Before the break, you heard from John Luff, Russia expert and former NATO representative in Moscow. There's a lot we can take from that conversation, but two big things stood out to me. The thought that the United States may have different objectives to Europe, and whether you're hearing that rudely from President Trump or politely from President Biden, the underlying message might be similar. And the second point is that the issue of Ukraine's membership may not so much be about Article 5 as the idea that European countries haven't really been straight with their populations. They haven't really explained to the people that we are arguably already participants in this war. As we've noted, the main country holding back a membership invitation being extended to Ukraine was the United States, which is also the country providing the Ukrainians with the most support in terms of weapons and so on. So what's going on here? How do we square this apparently contradictory circle? To get to the heart of the US perspective, who better to speak to than Stephen Pfeiffer, former US ambassador to Ukraine and now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, who joined us from California. Going back to the beginning of uh, when the invasion was launched back in February, the Biden administration has described really two objectives. Uh, one is to help Ukraine prevail, to defeat Russia, but also to avoid a direct NATO-Russian military crash. Yes. Those are the right two goals. I don't disagree with the administration, although I believe in finding the balance, they've tended a little bit towards the cautious side. Yeah, I think that explains the American uh, reluctance to sort of put Ukraine on a date certain right now. But let me also say, it, there seems to be in the media in the last couple of weeks, this idea that everybody in NATO is ready to put Ukraine on a fast track except for Washington and Berlin. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of NATO leaders who haven't spoken out on this in a lot of countries that my guests are also, while they are prepared to say yes, Ukraine will be in NATO. They're not prepared to say yes now while Ukraine is at war with Russia. 
Yeah. And those countries are probably hiding behind the Americans and the Germans. It's It's been done in the past. Yeah. And it, it's not inconvenient to, to have America putting its head above the parapet. Yeah. But I, I guess then, as part of this discussion, as you say, I mean, no one wants a, a direct NATO-Russia military confrontation. Uh, but the, the, the question of Ukraine's access to air power, once again, it, it's certainly been portrayed as a bit of a sort of transatlantic tussle. Uh, do, do you think that's, that's accurate? Or is, is, is again, that, that there's probably more complexity to it than that? Yeah. Well, again, it's not just Europe versus the United States. Yeah. And again, here too, it seems to me that, and this is where the caution plays in. But at the end of the day, you know, we got, in my view, to the right place on F-16s. Ukraine yeah. is going to be trained on F-16s by the end of the year. I believe the Ukrainian Air Force will be flying F-16s. In the same way that it took the alliance four or five months, but they came to the right point uh, on main battle tanks. So the yeah. Ukrainian military now has Leopards, and they will this fall be receiving uh, M1 Abrams tanks. Concern about the Russian reaction, it's probably slowed NATO decisions, or it slowed decisions by NATO members in terms of what they provide for Ukraine, but it hasn't stopped it. I, I want to talk, Stephen, a little bit about your own country, and, and obviously the lengthy cycle of a US presidential election is is starting to click into gear. It it does seem that Ukraine is actually a contentious issue in, in this election. There's a sense, perhaps, and understandably on a political cycle, that the Biden administration would love to see the Ukraine conflict, if not concluded, certainly um, the sort of major issues uh, resolved at some point this year or, you know, at the very start of next year. Uh, is is that is that plausible? Do, do you think? I still believe there is a chance that Ukraine can liberate more territory and be in a substantially better position by the end of this year. I, I hope I'm not being overly optimistic, but it mm. just seems to me that based on what the Ukrainians have done in the past 16 months, yeah, uh, and particularly because of their motivation, that they can achieve more. To the extent that uh, Ukraine becomes an issue. You know, particularly in 2024 in the election uh, run-up. And it seems to me, if you're going to look at what would be the two big foreign policy issues, of course, in the United States, like most countries, uh, elections are decided first and foremost on domestic issues. Yeah. But for foreign policy, this will be China and it'll be Russia, Ukraine. Yes. And I would think that from the president's point of view, uh, you know, certainly a Ukraine that is making progress is winning is a much better uh, uh, campaign uh, backdrop. And I, I have to, it's actually one of the things that, that sort of puzzles me. I, I served on the National Security Council back in the mid-1990s in the Clinton uh, presidency. Yes. It was made very clear to us by the National Security Advisor that you guys will not get involved in domestic politics in any way. And that's your, your quickest way, if you want to ticket out of here, do yeah. that. And I assume that there, with the Biden administration, is that same sort of difference. But I yeah. have to believe that there are people in the East Wing on the domestic political side who are thinking about re-election saying, you know, it would be a lot better off for this election campaign, re-election campaign if Ukraine's winning. Yes. So I'm not sure what effect they're having, or, or maybe maybe the president is looking at this saying, I'm looking at this, you know, and I'm not thinking about election points. Yeah. I'm thinking about just you know, based on his judgment, the kind of decision he's making. But it has kind of surprised me because I would have thought that the domestic political advisors would be kind of pushing a more aggressive stance to support Ukraine. Yes. 
So, so I guess we're looking at that record of the Biden administration, and it's not a crazy counterfactual to say, well, what if if there had been a President Trump? And of course, uh, it's similarly not a crazy counterfactual to ask, well, there could be a President Trump next year, or sorry, President-elect Trump. What's your best understanding of where the Republican ticket is going to end up on, on this subject? I would worry that if Trump is uh, elected in 2024, and let me say that I profoundly hope that that will not be the case. You know, it's not going to be a question of the NATO-Ukraine relationship. It's going to be a question of will the United States remain in NATO. Yeah. You know, a couple of other candidates have taken similar positions with Trump that we don't need to support Ukraine, although there are others who are pursuing a more traditional republic line and arguing that, yes, we should support Ukraine. So yeah. the field's pretty mixed now. I, 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 I look at the Republican Party in Congress, and I would say that you know, I've been following U.S.-Ukraine relations going back to the early 1990s, and it has almost always been an issue where there's been strong bipartisan support for Ukraine. Right. The only time I've become concerned is in the last eight or nine months, and it's because of the opinions voiced by what I refer to, for lack of a better phrase, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. That is, to my mind, still a minority view. But it seems to be that in the last five or six years, particularly during the Trump presidency, uh, Republicans who otherwise had good instincts sometimes subverted those instincts uh, to uh, basically fall into line with the, uh, the mega view. So that makes me a little bit nervous. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask, because obviously you, you come... This is meant as a compliment, no, not a criticism, although in the MAGA world it might be. You come from the foreign policy establishment. You, I'm sure, will have former colleagues and allies who, who would expect to be appointed in, in a Republican administration. Do you think that a second Trump presidency would just sort of completely abandon the, the kind of institutional um, center of gravity of, of, of the US foreign policy machine? Or would we see something like a rerun of the first where under great pressure, some of the more crazy Trump plans were kind of turned down, sometimes in manners that were sort of bureaucratically quite, um, quite innovative, you might say? Yeah, well, let, let me say, yeah, I, I would hope that would be the case. But I would fear that, in fact, you would have uh, uh, Trump unleashed. <laughs> yeah. uh, and again, as I said, I very much hope that the American electorate does not put us in that situation. Yeah, yeah. So I guess my final question then is about Europe. And, and um, uh, in, in some ways, you know, Trump, Trump was famously critical of European countries and, and their, their lack of uh, investment in their defense. But actually, you could find quotes from the Obama era, which which almost said the same words, but just in sort of kinder tones. Um, and even now, you know, with everything that's happening, uh, there still seems to be this kind of sluggishness in some European countries around, around really paying for proper defense. What can America do to try and shift this sort of dial? Because it, it seems... You know, the frustration as a European is that even when there's a massive war going on in Europe, there are plenty of European countries that still don't seem to be prepared to change their approach. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess the news isn't quite as big as it could be. So I think we're now at a point where from three NATO members meeting the 2% goal that was set back in 2014, a yeah. 2% of gross domestic product for defense, I think you're now up to 11. So you're about a third of the allies with a couple others, including, I think, Germany is supposed to come on board in 2024. Yes. Uh, so there is that shift. Uh, 
But I guess if I was in, uh, in Europe, um, I would be thinking, is the ship going, shift going as fast as it could be? Uh, and, and thinking not just about the threat here and now with Russia, but then thinking about what happens if the American electorate does make what I would regard as a horrible mistake and put Trump back in the White House, because then I think Europe would have a good chance of finding it could be on its own in security terms. Yeah. Even with uh, President Biden reelected, I mean, if you look at the picture from a global view, Russia, for all the misery and the pain it's causing in Ukraine now and the concern it's provoking in Europe is, I believe, a, a, a country in decline. And these very bad decisions that Putin has made to launch this war are only going to accelerate that decline. China, on the other hand, is a rising superpower. And yeah. at some point, uh, China is going to command uh, the, more attention. And that will take more attention of senior American policymakers. But it will also require more resources. So at some point, I think there will be a desire in Washington not to abandon Europe, but maybe to reduce the American commitment in terms of numbers of forces uh, so that there can be uh, a focus on, on, on China. So as we heard from Stephen Pfeiffer there, and he was speaking in the polite manner you would expect from a retired diplomat, the United States needs to focus more of its resources on Asia, particularly China. At the same time, Europe has been increasing its defence expenditure. But there is still a very long way to go if Europe is to really start taking responsibility for its own defence and security. As Ulrika noted, Europe doesn't at the moment have the military-industrial capacity to sustain Ukraine's counter-offensive, let alone equip its own militaries. A lot has happened over the past 500 days of this war. But Europe needs to do a lot more if Ukraine is to have a chance of success. It is, of course, perfectly possible that the war might continue for another 500 days. In that time frame, we could see a President Trump re-elected and potentially the withdrawal of the USA from NATO. This isn't the most likely outcome, but it isn't an outlandish one. But we might, on the other hand, see Ukraine, equipped with F-16s, defeat Russia and take a well-earned spot inside NATO, with President Biden elected to a second term. Either way, a lot can happen in 500 days. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Doomsday Watch. We'll keep bringing you updates when these important events occur. If you like what we're doing here, we'd love to welcome you on board as a Patreon supporter, where subscribers can gain access to extra interviews and one-off events, like our live Zoom chat last week, discussing our recent series on Russia's war in Ukraine. Just search Doomsday Watch Patreon and you can sign up for as little as £3 per month. That's all from me. Bye for now.